Welcome to Look Ahead 2017, a series of podcasts by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, discussing the events, trends and processes to watch out for in the coming year. I'm Paola Buonadonna. Today I'm joined by NISA's director, Professor Jajit Chada, to talk about whether economic forecasting will go out of fashion. Now, Chajit, it's fair to say that 2016 has been a bad year for economic forecasters, only marginally better than for posters. Yes, I'm, I'm often glad uh, to say that it's only pollsters that make economic forecasters look good. To some extent, I'm rather tired of people saying that economic forecasters got things wrong. The Institute's key forecast um, for what would happen to the economy after the referendum was that the exchange rate would fall. In fact, we thought that the exchange rate would fall by about 15%, which is exactly what it did. And the reason we said that is that we thought leaving the European Union would make the country the economy, more risky than it would otherwise be. One way that an economy reduces its level of risk is to trade with many other economies. That means that when a shock hits uh, your economy and not the overseas economy, by trading with that economy, you offset some of the shock and you reduce the overall level of risk. If you have a well-integrated trading area or trading regime with another set of rich countries, well-off countries, you're able to hedge quite a lot of risk as shocks come along. A vote to leave is a vote to say that we're not going to be able to hedge those risks anymore, so the country's riskier. And that was the main reason we thought the exchange rate was, would fall. It's a riskier set of circumstances for the UK. And yet, uh, the criticism that is mm. often heard of, of economic forecasters is that, uh, particularly regarding what would happen after Brexit, is that uh, people were given an impression that there would be an immediate and acute amount of pain, and maybe, and, and the economy actually proved to be a bit more resilient in the short mm. term. Does it mean that forecasters were wrong? Well, again, if we think about the economy, the economy must be thought of as a super tanker. It's not a mini going around Rome during the Italian job. It's not zipping in and out of the stairs. The economy is hit by a shock. It's already moving slowly and majestically in a particular direction. It takes time for it to move in a different direction. The view is always that in 2016, the impact of the possibility of leaving the European Union would have some impact on the economy, but only marginally in 2016. It be more profoundly felt in 2017. So the Institute's view is that growth is going to be about half a percent lower next year. And I think that's in line with the consensus. It's lower because there's more uncertainty, lower because we're actually going to trigger Article 50 in March. That's the idea. And that whole process is going to lead to firms and individuals being a little bit more uncertain about the future, holding back on a little bit of investment, maybe households saving a little bit more because they're not quite sure what's going to happen, maybe some people may lose their jobs, so that the economy is a little bit slower. That was always the central view of the Institute and most respectable forecasters. Now, those people who said that there'd be immediate impact on the economy had in mind, I think, an immediate triggering of Article 50, which didn't happen. They also had in mind a period of uncertainty over the leadership of the country. Now, this country is actually very good at changing leadership. It doesn't do it as many uh, as often as our friends in Italy, but we <laughs> seem to do it in the UK quite quietly. We did it um, reasonably effectively and efficiently mm. when John Major took over from uh, Margaret Thatcher. We also did it reasonably efficiently when Gordon Brown took over from Tony Blair. Mm. So we have a history of doing this, and we did it actually relatively efficiently and quickly to a new Prime Minister. That meant it gave us time to consider our options. And in fact, we're still living through that period of considering what we're going to do. Nobody has yet spelt out exactly what the UK is going to do when it leaves the European Union. So, 
rather than there being a radical change to an exit where we've smoothed it. So the delay in triggering Article 50, the early change in government, and I should say as well, the early and prompt action by the Bank of England cutting interest rates has all helped the economy smooth its adjustment to what sadly will be a lower level of income than would otherwise be the case. So perhaps the question is not whether economic forecasters get it wrong, mm. but to what extent they can get it exactly right. And as I understand it, there's no, there's no such thing as a, a perfectly correct, 100% correct economic forecast. Absolutely right. What, what a forecast does, or what I prefer to term a projection does, is it adds up all the bits of information on the economy. Every day we have a little bit of information, the jobs numbers, the CPI numbers, the housing numbers. We learn a little bit about America. We learn a little bit about Italy. All of that has to be added up. Now, you want to add it up in a way that you don't double count and you don't miss bits of the economy. So you want to add it up in a structural way. That's what a model is. It allows you to say where all those bits of information fit in to the structure of the economy. So then we can provide a consistent projection of where we think the economy is going to be. And yet we can do more. With that consistent projection, we can also say what the error bands are around that consistent projection. So what we can then do is say, look, we think within 65% or 95% certainty, these will be the outcomes of the UK economy, mm -hmm. a central projection, plus a bunch of error bands. Mm -hmm. That is really what the forecast is. It's a central projection plus error bands that, present, that represent different scenarios for the economy. So one scenario as we just talked through, is an early triggering of Article 50, mm -hmm. uncertainty about who the political leadership is, and a lack of monetary policy responses. That would have led to one set of outcomes. The worst-case scenario. The, for example, exactly yes. right. Or one of many worst-case There could even yeah. be a worst-case scenario, if you think about it long enough. But another scenario is that the Article 50 was not triggered so quickly. Mm -hmm. We had an effective change of leadership in, in the country. There was some adequate policy mm -hmm. fiscal responses. So that, that's a better scenario. And if you could add up all the scenarios that are possible, you'd get that distribution that I talked about mm -hmm. a minute ago. Mm -hmm. And that is what the forecasting process does. It allows you to make consistent statements about the state of the economy. So then you might ask me, what if we'd done even more on monetary policy? What if the Chancellor in the Alton statement mm -hmm. had announced even more of a deficit and even larger levels of debt? Um, what if uh, we decided not to trigger Article 50 for another year? I could run that through the model and give you a baseline as to what happens. So what you need to, what everyone needs to understand is that behind the numbers is a story and the model is a way of adding up that story numerically. But given these limitations, the mm. fact that we don't know the future, we, sure. can, only, we can only plan for a certain number of scenarios, mm. the ones that occur to us, but mm. then events can always turn up and that, that we don't expect and so on and so forth. Why forecast at all, given that the future is unknown? Yeah. And I agree with you completely, the future is unknown. Um, I'm pretty close to believing in the efficient use of information by markets, so that yesterday I was asked for the, my Brent price forecast for the end of 2017. I just use the futures market. I, I don't know. I haven't got any extra information over and above the marketplace on the relative supply and demand for oil, so I'll just use the futures price. So that's quite right. But what you're able to do um, with a forecast, as I've said, is project, having added up the economy, where we think things will be, Having done that, we use the errors to understand which story actually happened. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your worst case scenario. Let's suppose our central case was that worst case scenario. It wasn't, but let's suppose it was. And then let's suppose the economy does better than we anticipated. Our job is to understand which story did happen amongst all the alternatives. 
by having pinned down our view as to what would happen, then we can observe what did happen, we can understand the news in the economy. We can, so rather than just being a massive, well, this has happened, and that has happened, and this has happened, we're able to say specifically what happened was that the Article 50 was triggered later. Government changed quickly, and the Bank of England and the fiscal authorities did more than we could have anticipated. So forecasts are uh, as much about trying to uh, set a course towards the future mm. as to actually establish what, what happened in the past, the sort of a history it, or whatever. Well, yes, it's, it's as much, we, it's a common word used now, it's as much a nowcast yeah. as it is a forecast. It's as much that. We don't really know everything that's happening in the economy today. We might only know very much about things that happened six months ago. So a lot of the forecast process is trying to understand all the bits of data I've been talking about to get us a view as to where we are. We then can take a central case to project forward the state of the economy to give us a, a central view as to when we're going to get there. We might think of this as, our, as a journey. Let's suppose you were crazy enough to get in your car and drive up to Leeds. Your central projection is it's going to take two hours or two and a half hours, depending on which part of London you leave from. That helps you plan. That helps you know how much water to carry in your car. It tells you how much fuel to carry in your car. It, it also enables you to tell your people who are in the car with you how long to expect to get to Leeds. That's helpful. That doesn't mean it's going to take two and a half hours to get from London to Leeds. It can often take a lot longer if any of us have been stuck on the M1 or the A1 will realise. But then we can explain on arrival what the reasons were. And of course, we can at some point take on more fuel and water if we need for that journey. The forecast is that kind of process. Now, playing devil's advocate here for a second. Please you know, do. There, there's no lack of authoritative forecasters. Yeah. Uh, you've got the Bank of England, the Office of Budget Responsibility mm. and so on. Why do we need the National Institute? We need the National Institute um, because it is not a policymaker. I have no reason ever to doubt the bank's forecast or the OVR's mm. forecast. But their forecasts lead directly into the people who make policy judgments on interest rates and policy judgments on fiscal policy. So they're intimately connected with the policy decision, the policy outcome, and have to have a narrative that's consistent at some level with the policy choices that are being made. The Institute stands apart. It is not a policymaker. It can give a view on the UK economy that's independent of the state of policy. If we think policy is wrong, we will say policy is wrong. Our models can also coordinate monetary and fiscal policy in a way that the bank and the OBR cannot. We can take different scenarios for bank rate, different scenarios for the asset purchase facility, different scenarios for the fiscal rule, and see what happens to the economy. So we stand able to do the job properly. Finally, I think I'm bound to ask you at this stage, what is the outlook uh, for 2017? <laughs> well, you'll know me well enough now, Paolo, to know that I'm an optimistic type of chap, and uh, I tend to see the, the best in uh, perhaps too many things. Um, but I'm concerned um, about the economy. I, I, our central projection is, as I said right at the beginning, about half a percent of growth. So from something like 2% to less than 1.5% um, for next year, which by itself is not terrible. It's a little bit below the long-term average of around 2 to 2.5%. So people, on average, or in the median, will feel worse off. But the problem at the same time is that we're going to have an increase in inflation. CPI inflation is around 1% now. On our projections, it's going to be north of 3% by the end of next year. And if wages and salaries of people at the median are fixed, those people are going to feel considerably worse off over the, next of next, uh, over the rest of next year. The main cause of the increased inflation is that fall in the exchange rate that I described some moments ago. 
um, and that is likely to add two to three percentage points to inflation next year. So these families are going to feel worse off. And that's a worry. I don't think we should, as an economy, be delivering year on year a situation where families do not feel better off. The inability to generate growth per capita has been the main policy failure of the last 10 years since the financial crisis. And it's something that will not be addressed and cannot help to be addressed by immediately, at least, by the decision to leave the European Union. And of course, it's many of those families who have not felt increases in their household real wages in the last eight years who voted to leave the European Union. And the tragedy is they're going to be worse off because of that decision. And I worry about what the government is going to do about it. The Institute is working hard to understand some of these issues. We're trying to understand what um, inflation is for, different, uh, for people at different income levels. We're trying to understand what the overall pass-through will be from the fall in the exchange rate to inflation and understand what scope there may be for increases in wages given um, labor market, the lack of labour market slack at the moment. And we hope that maybe people may not in the end be uh, feeling as worse off as I am concerned about. But I am concerned that many households this time next year will feel worse off than they do this year. Well, let's hope those policymakers are listening. Thank you very much, Judge Ichada. I hope they're listening as well. Thank you, Paula. And if you want to become better acquainted with our forecasts, as well as our social and economic research, please visit our website, www.nisa.ac.uk.